Subscribe to Inclusion Revolution Radio wherever you get your podcasts. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Matt Lombardo Show, part of the Stacking the Box podcast. Please welcome your host, Matt Lombardo. What's going on, everybody? Welcome on into the Matt Lombardo Show right here inside Fansided Stack in the Box podcast feed. I'm Fansided National NFL Insider Matt Lombardo. We have a big show ahead. Great to have you here. A little bit later on, we'll be joined by Ravens offensive lineman Bradley Bozeman. Get into the Ravens' fast start, Lamar Jackson's strong start to this season, how the Ravens build momentum on last Monday night's really exciting overtime win over the Indianapolis Colts, and a whole lot more. We'll talk about some of the best young quarterback play we've seen in the NFL in recent years, including which of the young quarterbacks that I would love to start a franchise and build around for the next 10 to 15 years and a whole lot more. But as always, a little bit of housekeeping for you. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store, Spotify, Spreaker, SoundCloud, all of your favorite podcast platforms to fan-sided Stacking the Box NFL Podcast. It's the great deal out there. You get two great NFL podcasts for the price of none, you get Stacking the Box with Matt Verderam and Mark Carmen every Tuesday, and the Matt Lombardo Show hits your podcast feed every Friday. And if you really enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and leave a five-star review for Stacking the Box and mention the Matt Lombardo Show. It really helps grow the show. Let me know what you like about the podcast, what you don't like, maybe a guest or two that you like to hear from, and this week, make your case for the NFL MVP through five weeks. If the season ended today, who were you giving the MVP award to and why? And I'll read it on next week's podcast. And as we always do on this show, we try to touch on the biggest stories across the NFL each week. And this week, the biggest story in the NFL also happens to be one of the biggest stories in all of sports this entire year for all of the wrong reasons. That, of course, is the fallout from John Gruden's emails coming to light thanks to a series of reporting from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Gruden resigned on Monday night as the Raiders head coach, and he absolutely had to go. Had to go. There was just no possible way that Gruden could continue to be the face and the leader of an NFL franchise after those hateful, racist, sexist, homophobic, misogynistic, and bigoted messages came to light. There's just no way that Gruden could walk into that particular locker room and look Carl Nassib, the first openly gay player in the NFL, in the eye after Gruden sent emails to Jeff Fisher using a homophobic slur and complaining about the NFL, quote-unquote, forcing the Rams to draft Michael Sam, who, of course, came out leading into the NFL draft the year that he was taken. And there's just no way that Gruden would have any credibility among any black players across the NFL after writing an email saying that, quote-unquote, Eric Reed should be fired for protesting social injustice during the national anthem. He had to go. There was no possible way that John Gruden could continue to be the face of an NFL franchise and the face of that particular franchise, the Raiders. We're talking about Al Davis's Raiders here. Al Davis being a trailblazing pioneer of an owner who was well ahead of his time in so many regards. Al Davis, of course, who was a trailblazer in terms of hiring the first Latino head coach in Tom Flores. He hired Art Shell as the first African-American head coach of the modern era. And he hired Amy Trask as CEO and was rewarded handsomely for doing so. Not only because Amy Trask is one of the brightest football minds out there, but because during her stewardship as CEO, the Raiders saw almost unprecedented success. 
So you're talking about some of the, the major subsects of society who were largely responsible for the Raiders' run of success under Al Davis. Latinos, African Americans, women. None of that mattered to Al Davis. Al Davis went out of his way to lift up members of those communities. But apparently it mattered to John Gruden for all of the wrong reasons. Gruden's belief system, his values, they didn't match the Raiders' legacy. They didn't match Al Davis' beliefs that the Raiders were founded on. And they should be an affront to NFL and football fans everywhere. They really should. You can't have a head coach, a CEO of a company, or anyone in a person of power who holds such bigoted views. But this is where I think this situation is even more disheartening and more troubling, and it goes well beyond John Gruden. And I think it should be a five-alarm fire for the rest of the NFL. Unfortunately, John Gruden isn't alone here. He's not the only person. He's not the first person. He's not the last person to be homophobic. He's not the last person to be racist and make racist comments about people of power or otherwise. He's not the first person to make disparaging comments about women. Unfortunately, this is the world that we live in. It's not right. I wish that it wasn't. I hope and I try to act every day in a way that brings about the kind of change that we can move past these archaic beliefs. But we're not there yet. And what's unfortunate here is that John Gruden could send these messages over the span of a decade plus to Dennis Allen, the former GM of the Washington football team, and others unchecked. It speaks really to a level of comfort that Gruden shouldn't have been afforded given what he was saying in these messages. It speaks even louder volumes that these were being sent to powerful figures not only in the NFL but across sports that he could be unchecked. That these emails didn't come to light over the course of a decade. That nobody spoke up even in the conversations and said, Yo, John, we can't be saying these things. That John Gruden felt comfortable enough to communicate in this way, to espouse these views, to say such bigoted, hateful, racist, misogynistic things over the course of a decade is the kind of protectivism that allows bigots to hide in plain sight, not just in the NFL, but in your corner office or in your high school. And Jeff Passion's emails, the NFL's general counsel, really underscore that. There's an ugly subculture, it seems, within the NFL that seems to mirror some of the darkest corners of our society at large that the leaks of Gruden's emails seem to expose. This goes well beyond John Gruden, because remember... These emails are only coming to light because there was an investigation into the Washington football team and the toxic workplace culture under owner Dan Snyder. And just notice that Daniel Snyder's emails haven't been brought to light. You've now seen the emails that have been sent and received by an NFL head coach, a former employee of Daniel Snyder, and the NFL's general counsel that really, unfortunately, if you talk to people around the league, Some of this stuff is kind of bubbling just underneath the surface, and it might not be that far below the surface as we're seeing and we're coming to realize this week. And I guess that's one of the things that really troubles me the most about this whole story. As someone who's been around the NFL, covered the league for the last 11 years, been around the league in a professional setting for the better part of a decade or more, been a fan of the NFL and a fan of football for my entire life, that John Gruden, Dennis Allen, Jeff Passion, and others felt comfortable enough to send these emails, to send pictures of cheerleaders, Washington football team cheerleaders topless, to make bigoted comments, to make racist comments about DeMaurice Smith's appearance through company emails. They sent these using company email addresses. That, to me, makes it feel like there should be a real reckoning here 
in terms of the NFL. It's not just about John Gruden. It's not just about Jeff Passion. It's not just about Dennis Allen. It's anyone who is communicating in this way. It's anyone who's been in a position of power. And again, I, I don't care if it was all white men communicating this way. I do think it's an affront for Jeff Passion, who is the league's general counsel, to be entertaining jokes about songs that were written by the Washington football team to try to entice Latino and Hispanic fans for Passion to make some sort of comment about, quote, I don't think that song is going to be as popular once the wall is built. Or for Jeff Passion to even entertain emails from Dennis Allen disparaging the Rooney rule that requires teams to interview minority candidates for head coaching positions, suggesting that Allen wanted to propose a quote-unquote Lincoln rule, that just is unacceptable. It's not acceptable in today's day and age where we're trying to move towards a position of equality. Again, I'm of the belief system that I find it very difficult to believe that the default position for, for anybody in society isn't that racism, misogyny, homophobia, bigotry are all abhorrent and that acceptance and equality should be the goal of society. But that clearly wasn't John Gruden's goal. It clearly wasn't Dennis Allen's goal. It wasn't Jeff Passion's goal. And if you're going to make these sort of disparaging comments to so many groups of people about so many groups of people, I don't know how you move forward. I don't know how you remain in a position of power. I really hope that a light is shined on all of these emails from anyone within the league who sent them, who received them, who entertained the jokes, who took part in sending the photos, receiving the photos of the poor cheerleaders who were topless in the photos. I hope they're met with a similar fate to John Gruden. I hope that a light can be shined on whatever dark underbelly is within the NFL. And you'd have a better organization. You would have a better league. You would have a better product. And it wouldn't just be lip service to be running commercials that says it takes all of us or to paint in the end zones of stadiums across the league and racism or it takes all of us. What it should take is all of you to figure out how to get in line and to fix what's bubbling just beneath the surface. Because everything Gruden said, everything that he believed runs antithesis to leadership. The beliefs he espoused couldn't be more cowardly. And I think the NFL would be much better off without people like Gruden in positions of power all across the league. And on the other side, we'll get back to football. We'll chat with Bradley Bozeman of the Baltimore Ravens next, right here on the Mount Lombardo Show, Inside Fan Side at Stack in the Box podcast feed. Welcome back into the Matt Lombardo Show, and this is a conversation I've really been looking forward to. We're joined now by Baltimore Ravens starting center Bradley Bozeman. You can follow him on Twitter, at BSBoz. Bradley, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great today. Thank you for having me. Of course, happy to have you here. And, you know, you guys are one of the hottest teams in the NFL right now. You've rattled off four straight wins after losing that heartbreaker in Vegas. You're pretty close to being undefeated if that game goes the other way late. What's been clicking for you guys, especially on offense so far this year? Uh, you know, just just the heart and finish these guys have across the board, offense, defense, special teams. Um, you know, these these guys have really dug deep. All of our guys have dug deep uh, in the crucial moments and, you know, made it work, made the play, um, did what we had to do to to get the ball rolling. Um, so I, I think it's just I don't think it's just offensively. I think it's all the way up the board that everyone has really stepped up and just continue to work and continue just to, to keep building and keep striving uh, for greatness. So, um, you know, just we're just trying to continue to improve and keep ourselves out of these super exciting games. <laughs> but because, you know, you 
you can't you can't win them all when they when they get down to the wire because everyone else you know, gets paid and everyone else uh, is an NFL team. They're a good team, so um, you know we're just excited to keep building and keep doing the things and executing the way we need to do it. Yeah, forget the cardiac cats. You guys are like the comeback birds, I guess you could say, right? And you know, <laughs> right, right. You you anchor the offensive line in front of Lamar Jackson, and Monday night he goes off career high over 400 passing yards, maybe his finest game as a passer that we've seen in his career. You're in meetings with him every day. You're on the practice field. Obviously, nobody closer than a quarterback and a center. What's been his biggest improvement so far this year? Where have you seen him make the most strides? Um, just the continuous, like, growth overall. But I think one of the biggest things is managing the game. Um, you know, managing the play clock, you know, keeping us calm, keeping us cool, just continuing to go out there and just playing his game. I mean, the guy is one of the most special quarterbacks that's ever stepped back in the pocket. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's a pleasure for him to, you know, to play for us and uh, for me to be his center. So, you know, it, it's great. Um, so, you know, the guy has just continued to grow. He's continued to grow as a runner, a passer, um, a quarterback, just the knowledge of the game, the management of the game. Um, and I think he's just done a good job overall of uh, just making sure that, you know, he keeps putting his team in the best situations. A lot of heroics on Monday night, but another big game for you guys was against the Chiefs. Sunday night football, the building's going crazy. The last five minutes, you guys mounted a, a furious comeback. What were those last couple of series of that game like? And obviously we've seen the Chiefs kind of take their lumps, but that felt like a springboard game. And I've, I've written this a couple of places. I feel like you guys authored the blueprint how to beat that defense. But what was that like for an offense over the last five or 10 minutes or so in front of those fans with everything going the way it did? Um, it's, it was electric. You know, it was it was proof to ourselves. You know, we, we've struggled with the Chiefs, at least since I've been here. Um, and they've, they've been one of our strongest uh, competitors that we've played every year. Uh, we've always been kind of in the hunt at the end of the game, but, you know, we hadn't been able to really close the deal. Um, and I think it was a real pride thing for all of us, you know, to make sure that, you know, we were able to close that door to move on and get that monkey off our back, um, you know, just continue to, to press forward and try to get those those points to put ourselves in a good situation to win the game at the end. And then obviously the the huge, um, you know, strip strip tackle, um, and get the ball back, and then we go forward on fourth down and win the game. You know, it was amazing. It's one of the – Probably one of the most exciting I've, I've been after a game. Um, so it was, it was really good to, to get that win and just to, to prove to ourselves that we can, we can do it and we can be competitive in this league. You brought up the strip sack by, Jay, by Adolphe Owe, and he also forced the interception of Patrick Mahomes earlier um, in that quarter. You're a guy who practices against him every day. Obviously, you guys are teammates. He's a kid who looks like he's making a run at Defensive Rookie of the Year. What makes him so special and what makes him such an impact player for your guys' defense? Uh, the guy continues to work. You know, he continues to to progress and do the things he needs to. He stays extra. He talks to the right people. He's talking to his vets. He's taking that knowledge and actually using it um, instead of just being like, oh, yeah, okay. But he's actually using that knowledge. I mean, the guy's gifted athletically, um, you know, and he knows the game of football. He's been doing – he's just been doing a great job overall just uh, coming in and really stepping into the role that he wanted to be in and that the Ravens wanted him to be in. So um, excited about the guy, excited to see the progress that he's made and just the continued progress – progress um and you know we'll we'll see what happens at the end of it i hope i hope he gets a really good run at that uh, defensive rookie of the year so yeah and and you know the game against the chiefs the game against the colts they were exciting but they weren't even the craziest moments of your guys season and i think one of the the crazier moments of the entire year was when you watch justin tucker line up and kick a 66 yard field goal game winner at the buzzer in detroit what's running through your mind at that point and what was the celebration like in the locker room with, with justin yeah, so roll it back at one, you know, one series, they come back, they tie it up, um, or no, they, they go up by a point. 
Um, and then we get the ball, I think, like the 15, the 20-yard line. Uh, we give up a sack as offensive line. And then, uh, you know, we're, we're ended up at fourth and 15 or fourth and 22 or something like that. Um, you know, we get the first, Lamar throws the first down to Sammy Watkins. He gets up and out of bounds. We run up, we spike the ball. Um, and then, you know, there's history from there. Um, so just watching that, watching that unfold and seeing him uh, be able to hit that game winner, you know, and break the record. Because I, I believe that Justin is one of the greatest kickers of all time. Um, and now he has, I think, all the accolades to show it. Um, so, so just glad, glad he made the kick for the team and for himself personally. Um, and just it was just a very special moment for sure. And, you know, talk about a great teammate, and a great person. You know, you're in a locker room with Lamar Jackson every day. You know, fans and people in the media, we see the electric playmaker on the field, the guy who can rattle off the big runs and make make throws that kind of, you know, make your eyes pop. But what's he like as a leader and what's he like as a teammate? What, what's Lamar like with you guys behind the scenes? Uh, you know, so I get this question a lot. And uh, I think the biggest thing that I always start with is Lamar Jackson is a better um, teammate than he is a football player, um, a better person than he is a football player. Um, the guy is thoughtful, considerate. I mean, he, he's respectful. I mean, everything, he has every opportunity to have the biggest head, not be able to fit through the door that's sitting behind this computer screen. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, the, the guy just just continues to keep his nose to the ground and continues to work, continues to, to progress, have his teammates back, celebrate with his teammates. You, he's never been arrogant, never, I don't think he ever will be. I mean, I think that's just the kind of guy he is. Um, so to have a guy like that, that to be electric on the field and an amazing teammate off the, off the field, I think is, is kind of rare. So just excited to, to have him in our building for sure. For sure. And, you know, I, I've become pretty good friends with a lot of offensive linemen around the league. And if there's one thing about you guys that I know is you guys really like running the ball, you know, whether it's in Baltimore or any offense, only take a lot of pride in, in the running game being road graders up front. You guys had 43 games of a hundred yards or more. How much of that was a point of pride for you guys up front? And when the streak, you know, ended the other night and even going back one more week, uh, Vic Fangio, were you surprised at how he reacted to all of that at the end of that Bronco game? Um, you know, it is it is what it is. People react to how they react to things. And, um, you know, it's kind of part of the past now and, you know, nothing really to look back at. But, yeah, as offensive linemen, to be able to run the ball, to be able to run the ball effectively. And when your number's called by the coordinator – um, to, to continuously run the ball down after down after down, even on third and fourth down, um, it is a huge pride for us. And, you know, we, we just want to, we want to take every opportunity we can and uh, put up as many, as many yards, as many points as we can to run in the football for sure. It kind of goes, you know, counteracts what everybody says on Twitter that the running game doesn't matter. Running backs don't matter. You guys are proven otherwise. I mean, you've got the five game winning streak. You got a team that's based on running the ball to set up the pass. And it's kind of been a next man up mentality there. You lose J.K. Dobbins early. You know, you, you have those injuries during training camp. How much has that brought you guys together as an offense, kind of that next man up mentality in the backfield and, and certainly for you guys up front? Yeah, you know, it's been that way, I think, for our whole team this year. Um, you know, it's been next man up. And I think every young guy that's been able to step up or every guy that we've been able to bring into the building um, has been uh, able to kind of fill that role and continue to progress and teammates having their back and making sure putting them in good situations uh, whenever we need to. Uh, as offensive linemen, you know, whoever's back there running the ball, you know, we want to try to make the biggest, widest holes that, you know, even even Harbs can run down them. Uh, so, you know, we, <laughs> Maybe we, even we want to make it. Right, exactly. We want to make it as easy as possible. So, um, but, you know, it's just about, you know, doing our job, making sure that those guys are secure, they know what's going on, um, and just making the, the reads and the cuts very clear. And so much of that starts with you guys up front and you personally as the center. 
Who's the most dominant defensive lineman that you faced in your career? Who who gave you the biggest fits? Uh, in my career, probably mm, Cam Hayward's a really good football player. Um, you know, he's in our division. We play him twice a year. You know, he kind of knows me at this point. He knows kind of my, my style of play. Um, and, you know, he, he's, he's, he's just so long, athletic. Um, you know, I think he kind of he composes all the run and the pass game um, together. So, you know, he, he's definitely up there on my list for sure. Aaron Donald, I mean, obviously, you know, he, he's a great, uh, great pass rush, great, great football player. Um, you know, there, there's guys across the board. I mean, um, uh, Michael Pierce, we're going to play him in a couple of weeks. Uh, played here, you know, me and him always went nose to nose in practice. So I'm sure that's going to be a battle. I mean, there, there's guys all across the league, Jonathan Allen. I mean, I could, I could go on and on and on, but, uh, but yeah, there's some really good football players, really good defense linemen in this league and just, um, you know, happy to have the opportunity to, to try to block them and uh, get my job done there. So, and, you know, those are pretty good defensive line you guys beat on Monday night. And just real quick, I want to circle back that you're down 25 to nine in the fourth quarter, and then you rally back. What turned it around for you guys and how much momentum can you take from that game into another big game this week? I think we just kept our nose to the ground. You know, we just kept, kept grinding, kept going. Uh, no, no one blinked. No one was like, oh, like the game's over. Like everyone just kind of kept their nose to the ground, kept scoring, kept, and we knew we had to speed it up. Like we knew to be able to, to put ourselves in a, in a winning position, we had to speed it up. We couldn't be burning time off the clock. Um, you know, so we went into our, all of our fastball stuff and, uh, made sure that, you know, we're moving the ball down the field and, and getting set up, getting quick lined up um, and just, you know, trying to get into the end zone every opportunity we could. So I think it was a definitely think it was a good momentum for us, you know, to be able to, like I said earlier, to be able to have those kind of games are huge in this league because you never know where you're going to get one. And it's certainly a week to week league, but you can carry and you've kind of taken on that mentality and that identity as a comeback team that has to help you moving forward. And speaking of help, you know, in addition to being the anchor of that offensive line and a great NFL center, Bradley, you know, you and were the Ravens, Walter Payton man of the year nominee last year, you and your wife have founded the Bradley and Nikki Bozeman foundation. You've done some great things around the Baltimore community. What initiatives are you guys working on this season? What are you excited about getting out there and doing this year? Uh, so whenever, so we had started off in the, uh, in anti-bullying. Um, and we did a cross-country trip where we talked to over um, 10,000 students, uh, went to 18 different schools, went from Maryland down to Alabama, Georgia, across the southeast, up to California and back across. Um, and we got shut down um, during that. And so we're sitting there, you know, it's like, OK, what can we do? What's you know, what's the next step that we can do during this pandemic? And we we're getting emails from kids saying, hey, like we don't have food, like our schools don't aren't providing us food. We don't you know, it's just kind of that weird in between area. So we actually started in food insecurities. Um, and then the food insecurities where we we have uh, given away about over two million meals um, at this point. So, I mean, it, it's been amazing. We started off with a food drive and now we're doing sink snacks um, and sink snacks stand for supporting your neighbors and communities. And these six by six boxes um, and this filled with Oreos and ramen noodles and um, Nutri-Grain bars and all these ravioli and all these little things that kids love to eat. Um, and they're being put in the back of the police cars. Uh, in, in the southern districts of Baltimore. And actually, their police officers are coming in um, and distributing these uh, boxes to these kids living in those areas. Uh, we were at a little local restaurant here, and uh, we got stopped by one of the police officers. And he goes, hey, like, are you Bradley and Nikki? He was like, yeah. He goes, well, I was at your packing event, um, and I give away food boxes. And I just want to say that um, the impact that your boxes have made is, has been um, just enormous. Um, he said, I used to pull into these, these Southern districts and kids would scatter, you know, they'd be playing basketball and they would just scatter. There'd be nowhere to go. 
um, no one to see in sight. And then now, you know, kids are, are flocking to the cars, you know, those police officers are having those conversations, be able to realize that, you know, they're each, each one of them are human, you know, they, they can talk and have those, those interaction. And, um, you know, just, just, I mean, it's just been such a great, um, a great asset for these police officers to be able to get into these communities and talk and, uh, really be able to open up about, you know, who they are, what they're trying to do. You know, they're not trying to cause problems. You know, they're trying to keep the peace. Um, and for those relationships, I think they're huge for our communities. Oh, no doubt about it. And my wife is a special education teacher. And during the pandemic, when she was teaching virtually from the kitchen table, you know, she would tell me all the time about how she felt bad for these kids who weren't getting the lunches at school. And, you know, they weren't getting the meals and some of them even rely on breakfast at the school. And it sounds like you guys did a great job of that. And now you're expanding it out into the community. That's that's just fantastic. And you guys, you and Nikki, you were even on the Today Show um, highlighting your charitable efforts. What was that like? And how gratifying is it for you to see that kind of publicity for everything you have going in your charitable aspects? Um, you know, I, I think it's great. I think it's a great from the aspect of giving the foundation and all the hardworking people that are behind the scenes that aren't, aren't just Nikki and I. Uh, there's so many people. There's AMG uh, Sports. There's, um, you know, Cats Advisory. There's um, Alan Hobbs, Seth Katz. I mean, all, all these all these amazing people um, that are behind the scenes that are working their butts off day in and day out to make sure this thing runs uh, smoothly. And for to get that kind of publicity um, for a cause so great is huge. And I think it just it, it shows just the work that they do day in, day out. Yeah, it's just tremendous. You you get to make an impact in the community, in the families, the micro level, the macro level. I think it's just tremendous. How can people get involved, Bradley? Um, so you can go to bozemancharity.com. Um, and you can uh, sign up to volunteer. You can donate. I mean, everything takes money to run, um, unfortunately. So, you know, but the, the more that is donated, the more that we can do. No one has, has seen a, a penny. All this money has gone straight back to the food insecurity. Um, and, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. So everything is tax deductible. Um, and, you know, we, we appreciate everything that you can and, and could do. So. Bradley, this has been tremendous. Best of luck this son, this weekend. I think against the Los Angeles Chargers is going to be another heck of a game. Good luck to you guys and best of luck with all of your uh, charitable actions off the field and everything you have Nikki going have going on. I think it's tremendous. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Matt. He's Bradley Bozeman. You can follow him on Twitter at BS Bozeman. Bradley, appreciate your best of luck and I'll talk to you further up the road. Sounds good. See you then. What great stuff there from Bradley Bozeman. And I'm really inspired by what him and his wife, Nikki, are doing off the field. So if you can get involved, please do. It's always great to see players, people who have the ability to, to make an impact both on their communities and in households on the micro level, as we talked about. And you can go ahead and, of course, follow Bradley Bozeman on Twitter at BS Bose. The Ravens are a really fascinating team. And I think that when you look at what they've been able to do, these comeback wins, they really test the metal of a football team. They really define the play of a young quarterback, especially someone like Lamar Jackson, who had so many questions, fair or unfair, coming into this year about his ability to win from the pocket, his ability as a passer. And I think we've seen over the last couple of weeks, especially Monday night against the Colts, we've seen that he's answered those questions. He's answered the bell. And I think the Ravens have played their way into that Super Bowl hierarchy in the AFC. They're the team to beat in the AFC North by far. I think they've easily surpassed the Cleveland Browns based on what what they've been able to do. And you put them right there in the conversation with the Buffalo Bills and the Chargers and now to a lesser extent the Kansas City Chiefs. 
there's something special being built in Baltimore. And I think Bradley Bozeman is a big part of that. And, you know, someone who's done a lot of things off the field in a different market in Philadelphia and across the country with his wife, Julie Ertz, is Zach Ertz. And the Eagles made a big trade and the Cardinals made a big trade on Friday, a move that I think has been building over the last couple of weeks when the Eagles traded Zach Ertz to the Arizona Cardinals in exchange for a fifth round pick in next year's NFL draft and cornerback Tay Gowan, a guy who hasn't been on the field yet. He was drafted in the fifth or sixth round by the Cardinals this spring. But you talk to people around Zach Ertz and there was just this feeling over the last couple of weeks that Ertz really wanted to get to a situation where he could compete for a second Super Bowl ring. You obviously saw what he did and how important he was to that Eagles championship team in 2017, catching the game-winning touchdown against the Patriots in Super Bowl 52. And now he goes, after being kind of an afterthought, in the offense in Philadelphia with the emergence of Dallas Goddard. And it seemed like Howie Roseman, the general manager, had kind of moved towards trying to lock up Goddard long term. And you never really could come to terms between the Eagles and Ertz. They move on. They, they get to insert Dallas Goddard as their number one tight end. And Zach Ertz gets an opportunity now to chase a ring in an offense in Arizona with Kyler Murray, with DeAndre Hopkins, Christian Kirk, Chase Edmonds, all kinds of weapons, all kinds of speed. And you drop Zach Ertz, a reliable pass-catching tight end, into that mix. And albeit he's 31 years old, and obviously he's not the same player that he was at 25 years old, but he's a reliable veteran. And, and I started asking around the league a little bit, what exactly does Zach Ertz bring Arizona? How much better are the Cardinals? And an NFC executive got back to me and said he makes them a little bit better on offense. He might be on the decline a little bit, but he's a veteran and he knows how to get open in zone coverage. And he's also going to be a great locker room guy, something that's invaluable for a young team like the Cardinals. If he stays healthy, he's going to be an impact player. And I agree with that assessment. He's not going to be a guy who catches 75 balls, but He'll catch you six, seven touchdowns over the second half of a season. He'll be a guy who can catch five, six passes per game. He's a guy that is going to be a legitimate weapon for the Arizona Cardinals in what is the uh, most difficult division in the NFL, maybe easily based on what we've seen. So the Cardinals get better, the Eagles get younger, and the Eagles get another draft pick for a franchise that's looking to rebuild and decide what they want to be in the next couple of years. And with a, an eye towards rebuilding, that's where I kind of want to turn in the final segment of this podcast. On the other side, I'll give my thoughts on some of the best young quarterbacks in the NFL who I would want to build around for the next 10 to 15 years and some games that I'm really looking forward to on Sunday afternoon. Keep it locked right here on the Matt Lombardo Show inside Fansided Stacking the Box podcast feed. Underdog Fantasy is the fastest-growing fantasy app and easiest place to play fantasy sports. Just jump on underdogfantasy.com or download the app, draft your team, and that's it. And if drafts aren't your thing, they also have a pick'em game where you can win 20 times your money in a single night. Use promo code RADIO, and Underdog will double your first deposit when you sign up with up to $100 in bonus cash. Deposit $100? Get $100 free. That's promo code RADIO. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back in. And last Sunday night, I thought we were really treated to one of the better quarterback battles that we've seen in the NFL in some time. Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. And Josh Allen looked every bit the part 
of an NFL MVP, and he just had his way with the Chiefs. It was just an embarrassing performance by the Kansas City defense and Steve Spagnuolo, who really had no answers for Josh Allen. He had a touchdown pass of 58 yards, a touchdown pass of 35 yards, made a couple of really big plays with his legs, and he looked like an MVP. And as I wrote in my column on Wednesday, the Buffalo Bills now look like not only the team to beat in the AFC and the number one seed with the inside track on home field advantage throughout the playoffs after beating Kansas City they look like the best team in the league they look like the team to beat in the NFL and they did it against Patrick Mahomes they did it against the Kansas City Chiefs and just watching that game I kind of had this this thought in my head that we're kind of living through a new quarterback renaissance right that if you grew up over the last 10 or 15 years the elite quarterbacks in the NFL have really been the elite quarterbacks who have been the best in the league over that entire span. You're talking about Aaron Rodgers, Ben Roethlisberger, Russell Wilson. These guys are always in the Super Bowl mix every year. Their teams are always competitive, and they're always chasing Tom Brady, whether it was with the New England Patriots, where he won six Super Bowls, or now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where they're the clear-cut favorites in the NFC, bar none, and in my opinion, the favorite to go to the Super Bowl. But they've kind of been the standard bearers of the quarterback position for a decade and a half and we're kind of living through a renaissance at the position that's led by Mahomes and Allen but a lot of really great young talent around the league I mean Baker Mayfield is kind of playing his way in and out of that conversation depending on the week depending on the performance and I think the one thing that's lacking in Baker Mayfield's game and might be holding back the Cleveland Browns from committing to him long term is he just doesn't have that clutch gene that he they seem to let teams off the hook. He really struggles to finish late in games. But you also have the quarterback from this year's draft class. You look at Justin Fields just getting his feet wet in Chicago in a division that outside of the Green Bay Packers for this year with Aaron Rodgers, while Rodgers is still there, isn't exactly winnable. But I'm not worried long-term about the Detroit Lions and Jared Goff. I'm not all that concerned about the Minnesota Vikings being playoff contenders for the next three to five years with or without Kirk Cousins. But Justin Fields, if he winds up being the guy and has more performances like we saw last week, the Bears could be a team to make some noise over the next couple of years. And then, of course, there's Trevor Lawrence and Trey Lance and Mac Jones who have all shown modicums of success, modicums of consistency, flashes of brilliance and a high ceiling where they're in the conversation of who would be the next great one. But, you know, after that game ended last week and then watching the Monday night game where Lamar Jackson really went off and carried the Baltimore Ravens on his back and won a game in overtime, the kind of game that they should have won on the road against the Vegas Raiders earlier this year, it got me thinking, who's the guy? That if you took Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen off the shelf, that if we believe they're the two best quarterbacks in the league, not named Brady, Rodgers, or Wilson, who's the next guy? Who's the next guy that you want to build a team around for the next 10 to 15 years? And I came up with three names. And these are kind of my top three when it comes to elite future franchise quarterbacks. They already are. They already are franchise quarterbacks. But I think that they're the best three not named Allen and not named Mahomes, who you'd want to be the face of your franchise for a decade or a decade and a half. And number three on that list is Kyler Murray. And I, I'm a stone-cold believer in Kyler Murray. I think that he's in the midst of the greatest start 
to a season of his career. I think he continues to get better. He's answered a lot of the questions already through five weeks that were kind of dogging him coming into this year. And the Cardinals are undefeated, the last undefeated team in the league by and large, because Kyler Murray has a real chance to be the MVP. He's elusive as a runner. He's fast as hell. He has one of the strongest arms in the league. He's accurate, and he has a great supporting cast. I mean, you look at Murray so far this year, he already has 1,512 yards, 10 touchdown passes, only four interceptions, and, you know, he seems to get better every single week. But the reason why I don't have Kyler Murray higher up on this list, even though I'm a stone-cold believer in him and his future, is I think he's in the ideal, perfect, tailor-made system for him to succeed. He really thrives in Cliff Kingsbury's air raid system. There's all kinds of speed around him. Now, he's the fastest guy on the field whenever he steps on the football field, regardless of who's on defense on the other side. But he has DeAndre Hopkins on the outside. He has Christian Kirk, who's a speedy wide receiver. He has Chase Edmonds in the backfield. So that's all built around speed, and it's all built around the best attributes of his skill set. But I don't know that if you drop Kyler Murray in Jacksonville or in New York with either the Giants or the Jets or the Detroit Lions, I don't know that he's having the kind of year and the same kind of success that we've seen him have throughout the course of his career. But I'll say this, he looks every bit the part of a former number one overall pick. He looks every bit the part of a potential MVP. And I think that any team, Any team around the league would be thrilled if he would be their starting quarterback. And number two is the guy we mentioned earlier and we talked a lot about in the previous segment with Bradley Bozeman. It's Lamar Jackson. And if you watch him this year, Lamar Jackson's growth as a passer and his evolution as a quarterback, it's been one of the more pleasant surprises of the first five games of the 2021 season. And I wouldn't even say it's a surprise. It's one of the more pleasant developments of this young season because I think the potential was always there and he was always kind of building as a passer. I thought some of the criticisms, while valid, that in the postseason and late in the year when it starts to get windy and rainy, that he struggles to win outside the numbers. His accuracy throwing the ball deep outside the numbers really undid the Baltimore Ravens last year in the postseason in Buffalo. I thought he struggled in some big moments in the postseason, but he's risen to the occasion so far this year. And he's a guy that just continues to get better. And I wouldn't be shocked if the Ravens commit to him long term before this season is over. Just look at the numbers. He now is a 104 passer rating. He has two games over 300 yards and Monday night's career high, 442 passing yards and four touchdowns against the Colts. It really felt like a coming-of-age performance for Lamar Jackson. I think he's answering a lot of the questions and a lot of the criticisms. Now, he has to do it in the postseason. I'm really interested to see what he's able to do if they have to play a Buffalo Bills in Buffalo, if they have to play a physical team that can pressure him and rattle him and force him to beat them through the air. I'll be fascinated to see what he does in those spots. But so far this year... There's no reason, no room, and and no real opportunity to criticize Lamar Jackson. I think that he's been one of the top players in the entire league. He already has an MVP on his resume. And he's also, in addition to being a developing and improved passer from the pocket, he's one of the more lethal dual-threat quarterbacks that we've seen since Michael Vick or Randall Cunningham. He's revolutionized the position again 
And he might be even more dangerous than Vic or Cunningham, especially if he becomes a more refined pocket passer, which he's doing this year. There's a lot of people on Twitter who have been critical of some of the things I've written about Lamar Jackson based on my conversations inside the league, where some skeptics have been critical and really unsure that Jackson can take those steps. I think he's taken every step this year. And I think that the Ravens would be foolish not to sign him to a long-term contract and continue to build around him, continue to add to the weapons. Now, I know Rashad Bateman got hurt during training camp, but that did him no favors. But if you can get him back with Hollywood Brown and you go and you get J.K. Dobbins back next year, you go and draft another running back, that offense is going to be even more dangerous. And Lamar is going to be an even stronger and even better quarterback. But the question that continues to follow Lamar Jackson is can he stay healthy? The durability is a real concern for any quarterback. And this isn't just a Lamar thing. You saw it with Daniel Jones with the Giants. When you're running your quarterback as often as the Giants do Daniel Jones and certainly as often as the Ravens do Lamar Jackson, you're going to take some hits. And whether it's concussions, whether it's knees, whether it's shoulders, whatever it may be, Can Lamar Jackson hold up? And I think that if he continues to get better from the pocket and becomes more of a passer first and a runner second, as we're starting to see, then he's going to answer that question as well. And he's going to check that box. And the Ravens are going to be even more difficult to beat. And they might be the long-term team to beat in the AFC North. But the quarterback that if I had my druthers, if I could take any quarterback in the league, any of the 30 quarterbacks not named Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen to build my franchise around, it's Justin Herbert. And every time I watch Justin Herbert, I'm more impressed and I'm almost blown away by the fact that he's only in his second NFL season. That he's only played in 20 career games. And, and here's what's most impressive about Lamar Jackson. Through 20 games, he has six fourth quarter game winning drives including one against the Chiefs this year, and it has three fourth-quarter comeback game-winning drives through the first five weeks of this season. Justin Herbert's the definition of clutch, and as I wrote about a couple of weeks ago, you talk to executives inside the league, you talk to scouts, you know, in the offense that he's in currently, the further that he gets away from what they asked him to do at Oregon, the more refined and the more improved and the higher a ceiling of a quarterback he's going to be. Herbert's literally taking the Chargers on his back and leading them to the top of the AFC West, and they're suddenly the team to beat in that division. They they already went into Arrowhead. They came back in the fourth quarter. They punched Mahomes and the Chiefs in the mouth. They won that game. They're the team to beat now in the AFC West, and they're one of the most complete teams in the AFC and maybe the NFL because of Justin Herbert. And I watched him against the Dallas Cowboys. I watched him against the Chiefs. I've watched three or four of his games so far this year. One of the more impressive performances was against the Raiders on that Monday night game. But he's a guy who has all the arm strength you could ask for, all of the accuracy, all of the poise in the pocket. He just has it all. And he's so, so, so clutch. If you want a clutch performer in the pocket, it's Justin Herbert. If you want a guy who needs to take the ball under and run when things break down around him, he has the ability to do that too. He's already a career 66.7 passer. He's passed for 5,912 yards with 44 touchdowns to only 13 interceptions 
through his first one-plus seasons, through his first 20 games. And most importantly, Justin Herbert's already shown that he can thrive in two different offenses, especially this year with the arrival of offensive coordinator Joe Lombardi from the New Orleans Saints. The Chargers really wanted to build an offense that mimicked and was able to achieve the same kind of success that the Saints had with Drew Brees and Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas and all of the weapons that they've had over the years. And you look at what they're doing with Austin Eckler at running back, with Mike Williams at wide receiver as a legitimate red zone threat, a dynamic number one wide receiver in Keenan Allen. Justin Herbert has really maximized the talent around him, and he looks every bit the player in that scheme that Drew Brees was in that system as well. They have all the weapons, but most importantly, the Chargers have the quarterback. And that's why Justin Herbert is a guy that, you know, you drop him into almost any situation around the league, he's a guy that I'm going to be most confident in winning that game. And he's the quarterback that I would most want to build my franchise around moving forward from here. And moving forward to Sunday afternoon, it's another really great weekend of games across the NFL. I feel like we say that every week where you can pick out three, four, five games that not only feature great quarterback matchups, all kinds of storylines, playoff implications, the whole nine, but this week it's all about quarterback matchups. And the best one of the bunch might be Chargers versus Ravens. Two of the quarterbacks we've already talked about in this segment. It might be the best matchup of the weekend with Lamar Jackson on a short week after a comeback against Justin Herbert and the Chargers and a Los Angeles defense that's really been punching above its weight over the last couple of weeks. And the Ravens, on the other hand, have become the NFL's comeback kids, led by Lamar Jackson's fourth quarter heroics and some clutch play by their defense, including Odafe Owe. And what a story Odafe Owe has been through the start of his career. Now, we've talked a lot of Ravens on this podcast, but I remember back in the spring, there were several scouts in the AFC who were pounding the table that Owe was a first-round talent talent regardless of the fact that he didn't have any sacks in his final season at Penn State they believed he was a top 10 to 15 player certainly a top three pass rusher and he's playing like a defensive rookie of the year candidate but that's what Justin Herbert is up against and I look at this game after what happened last week and you saw the Buffalo Bills just boat race out of Arrowhead, run the Chiefs out of their own building. I think the Bills locked up the number one seed last week. I wrote about it in this week's column. Go check it out at fansided.com. But this Chargers-Ravens game, it might decide the number two seed in the AFC playoffs. The game number two that I'll be watching, it's one of the game of, games of the weekend. It's Dallas at New England. Of course, this is going to be a great matchup. Of course, it's going to be a ratings bonanza for Fox, who gets Dallas and the New England markets pitted against each other. But you look at this game, you have Dak Prescott playing at an MVP level. He just had one of the finest performance of his season against the New York Giants, going off for 300 yards, three touchdowns to one interception. And you look at what he's up against this year, this week, it's the New England Patriots defense. Top five passing defense in the league. And Bill Belichick, of course, calling the shots. This is one of the best chess matches that we've seen in some time outside of maybe Brady going back into Foxborough a couple weeks ago. But you'll get Belichick against Prescott. That's a great matchup within this game. What a chess match and what a game this has the potential to be. And game number three that I'm going to be watching, it's Chiefs at the Washington football team. Listen, I know on paper and on the surface this doesn't look like a great game. I think that the Washington football team, especially on defense, with all of the talent they have in their front seven, I think they've really underachieved. I think they've been one of the more disappointments 
flatly throughout the first five weeks of this season. But this is a gotta-have-it game for the Kansas City Chiefs. This is a get-right game for Patrick Mahomes that they absolutely have to win. They need this. They desperately need to leave the nation's capital, Kansas City does, with a win. Because we touched on it earlier, that was a humiliating defensive performance by Steve Spagnuolo and the Chiefs last Sunday night. Josh Allen could do whatever he wanted, whether it was running or throwing. They had no answers for the Bills. Now, Tyler Heineke isn't Josh Allen, but he's playing pretty well. Look what he did two weeks ago on the road in Atlanta in comeback fashion. They have some weapons over there. Terry McLaurin is a top 10 receiver in this league. Antonio Gibson, probably a 15 or so running back. They have weapons. Kansas City needs to figure out how to stop them. So the three games that I'm going to be watching closely and I think really carry some major implications on both sides of the playoff bracket, Chargers-Ravens, Cowboys-Patriots, and Chiefs-Washington football team. This has been a great show. Really enjoyed it. Thanks to Bradley Bozeman and the Baltimore Ravens. Loved picking his brain. Thanks to Fanside. It's Cole Thompson, who each and every week does a fantastic job getting this podcast up and running and ready to go. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe to Stacking the Box, an NFL podcast in the Apple Podcast Store, SoundCloud, Spotify, Spreaker, all of your favorite podcast platforms, and leave a five-star review. Let me know what you like about the podcast, what you don't like, And who's the MVP through five weeks? Give me your MVP choice as part of a five-star review, and I'll read it on the show next week. You can follow me on Twitter at MattLombardoNFL. Enjoy the games. Enjoy the week, everybody. I'm Matt Lombardo. I'll talk to you right here on the Matt Lombardo Show, Inside Fanside at Stacking the Box podcast feed. Same time, same place, next Friday.